And, you know, I love the energy here, despite having one hour less sleep. Amen. Is it Angel's Espresso Shots? Is that what's doing it for everybody? All right, all right, let's give Angel a hand. Nice. All right, um, we're continuing our series in the book of Mark, and our series is called Follow Me. But today, we're going to do a shift. Not a shift from the book of Mark, but a shift in the book of Mark. As we've been going through the book of Mark, you'll remember that the very first verse in the book of Mark, Mark puts all his cards on the table and he tells us exactly who Jesus is. He says that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. He tells us who Jesus is. But then he doesn't say anything about who Jesus is for eight chapters. He just kind of shows us who Jesus is. He shows us that Jesus is living out the kingdom of God, that he has power over the demonic, that he's healing sick people, and he's spending time with unclean folks. He's just showing us who Christ is. But then again, right now, he shifts, and he puts back on the table just who Jesus is. He puts back on the table that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He, he tells us. And he does that because Mark wants us to wrestle. Mark wants us to wrestle with who Jesus is. Mark wants us to shift, even as he shifts in his book that he writes to us. I'm going to ask uh, Leah Toussaint to come forward. Leah and Curvins came down to visit us from Coral Ridge, one of our sister churches. So let's welcome her. And she is going to read uh, scripture for us. From Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death 
before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Precious Jesus, we hear your words. We hear your rebuke and we hear your affirmation. We hear your mission and we hear your grace. We hear your love. We, we hear why you came in this text. And we're so grateful for the truth that although you would suffer at the hands of man in this adulterous and sinful generation, of which we all are, you stood out and in your flesh offered it up as a sacrifice for my redemption, for our redemption. And grave could not hold you, death could not hold you. Father, I thank you that the resurrection of Christ seals our resurrection. And I pray, God, that as we see the works of Christ in his word today, that we will be encouraged, that we, our hearts will be met with the warmth and the love of a Christ who knows exactly what it is to suffer at the hands of man. And he didn't seek to save his own life, but to lay it down for us. So in the word today, may we hear that testimony of Christ and may it encourage our hearts and souls today. Would you bless the speaker? Let the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart be acceptable in your sight. And I pray that all that we hear is from you and from your throne. May it be glorious in our ears and may it encourage us to share the good news that you have given us. May we leave this place, God, full with your presence and full with your word, quick to share, quick to give, quick to love, quick to lose the things that we think we have to hold on to so dear. Be glorified today as only you can in Jesus' name. Jesus cannot be tamed, and yet we try and tame Jesus cannot be tamed, and yet we try and tame He is who he is, and yet we try and define him the way that we want to. Jesus will not change, and yet we put our expectations on him to try and change him. Jesus will not be tamed and yet we try and tame him. One way that we try and do this is if you pull up a picture of Jesus on the internet. If you pull up a picture of Jesus on the internet, Jesus looks more like he's from Northern Europe than from the Middle East. People put their own expectations on who Jesus is. They try and tame him so that it fits their expectations. They try and make him white. That's one way. But other times they try and make Jesus squishy. They try and tame Jesus by making him squishy. And, and, and the way you make Jesus squishy is you just say, Jesus tries to comfort me, but he'll never command me. Jesus loves me, but he won't send me. Jesus is more about my agenda than I am about his agenda. Jesus is more about my plans, so I don't have to worry about being about his purposes. Sometimes we'll even take Jesus' grace towards us, which he gives lavishly, and we'll turn his grace into a lifelong personal therapy session. Instead of letting Jesus' grace embolden us as forgiven sinners, filled with the Holy Spirit, to go out and share that very same grace on the streets. You and I try to tame Jesus even though he won't be tamed. He's untamable. We'll try and define him. We'll try and limit him. We'll try and make him be who, he, who we want him to be or come to him 
on our terms. But Jesus is untamable. And what that means for us as followers of Jesus, or if you're thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus, is that you and I have to shift. We have to change. Jesus does not change. We have to let him be who he says he is. And we have to be who he has called us to be. We don't get to define who Jesus is. He gets to tell us who he is. We don't even get to say who we are. We have to listen to who he says we are. Jesus is untamable. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they're having conversation. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And some say a prophet. And what all those responses communicate is people are saying that you're from God, but you're not the one from God. There's still someone else to come. You're just preparation for whatever God is doing next. And you know if you ask people out on the street, they'll say all sorts of things when you ask them who Jesus is. They'll, they'll say that Jesus is a good teacher. They'll say he's a spiritual guru. They'll say, might even say he's a prophet. And in all those responses you'll hear on, on the street, it's, he's great, but he's not the one. He's not the one. Jesus is very interested, though, in what you think about him. Are you willing to define him by who he says he is? And so Jesus says, okay, people say that's who I am, but who do you say that I am? Who do you Peter, say that I am. Who do you, disciples, say that I am? Who do you, Carol, Kervins, Tony, who do you say that I am? Peter responds and says, you are the Christ. You are Messiah. There's no one coming after you. Everything has been in preparation for you. We're throwing our lot in that you are the anointed one. You are the chosen one. There's no one in your category. You are the one that has been promised and prophesied about for generations and generations. You are the one who has been sent by God and empowered by God to, to accomplish his purposes. You have come to set things right in this broken world. All that's packed in when Peter says you are the Christ. Old Testament expectation had talked about this one to come. In Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah prophesies and says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will deal securely. And Peter is saying to Jesus, that's you. We believe that that is you. There's no one else coming. We're throwing our lot in with you, that you are the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Mark wants us to hear that and wrestle ourselves. As I said, Mark, from the very get-go of the first verse, he tells us who he believes Jesus is. And then he shows us. And then he comes back to telling us again because he wants us to wrestle with who we believe Jesus is. Not who we want him to be but what Jesus is communicating to us about who he is, about who he is. Mark wants us to wrestle 
Mark wants us to wrestle with the difference about who we want Jesus to be versus who Jesus says he is. And we must wrestle with who Jesus says he is because we might miss out if we're not willing to wrestle and shift. If we're not willing to wrestle and shift. And as we wrestle and shift our perspective, not from from what we think Jesus should be to who Jesus says he is, it is going to require us to risk. It's going to require us to risk. Because a lot of people will say Jesus is a good teacher. But they don't follow his teachings because that's too risky. A lot of people say Jesus had spiritual power, but they're afraid to say that that spiritual power comes because Jesus is God, because that's too risky. People say Jesus showed us how to love, but they're afraid to risk that Jesus' greatest love, act of love, was on the cross, because that's too risky to say. You and I need to wrestle and risk, which is what the disciples are doing right at this moment in this story. They're wrestling and they're risking. When Peter throws his lot in and says, it's you, you are the one, he's saying, you're not just a representative of the kingdom of God. You're not just teaching us about the kingdom of God or showing us the power about the kingdom of God. You are the king. And that's risky to say, because at the time, there were people sitting on other thrones in the land. Mark wants us to wrestle and risk with who Jesus is. Peter throws his lot in with Jesus, but it's not quite risky enough. You see, Peter, even in confessing that Jesus, the Messiah, he still has tamed Jesus just a little bit. He still thinks that Jesus is mostly about his tribe and his people. And he thinks that Jesus has come to free his people from the Roman oppressors. And so when he sees Jesus and he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, he's thinking very politically. He's thinking about Jesus setting his people free from the bondage of their Roman oppressors. And to be honest, that's, even though that's fantastic, it's still a little too narrow. Yeah, yeah. See, Jesus is bigger than that. And Peter has tamed Jesus in his expectations. Jesus immediately, though, says, I affirm what you've said, but there's more. You need to shift your perspective and open up so that you can figure out more of who I am. And I love that about Jesus because he helps us get to an understanding of who he is, but he will not let us stay when we are where we are misunderstanding. He's not okay with you having a wrong view of who he is. And so he opens up the disciples to a new teaching about himself. And this is one of the shifts that happens in the book of Mark. It says that, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said these things plainly. Now at this point, the disciples are going, this does not compute. There's like a permanent little trying to, you know, thing trying to upload in their brain. Because it's going, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We just said that you're the chosen one. You're the king. You're the one who has come to rule and reign. And, and then you're talking about some suffering and some dying. Like, 
We just said that you're going to win, and now you're telling us you're going to lose. Does not compute. Does not compute. The, when Jesus uses the term son of man, it, it's a reference to the Old Testament and a reference to Daniel 7 about this great king who would come in glory and he would rule over all the nations and all the people. That sounds good. But then when he says son of man must suffer, it doesn't seem to go together. And so Peter goes, um, Jesus, let, let, me, let me talk to you for a minute. Uh, I know that you're just telling us who you are about the suffering and dying and stuff, but um, can I correct you for a minute? I don't think that's who you are. And Jesus refuses to let Peter tame him. In one of the most famous verses of the Bible, Jesus turns and sees his disciples, and he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now, it wasn't that Satan had overtaken Peter at that moment. It was that Satan is always trying to subvert the purposes of God. And at that moment, Peter was aligning with that more than he was with the purposes of God in Christ. And Jesus tells Peter, listen, you are worried about human power and prestige and not the purposes of God. I think one of the hardest things for the disciples to understand, <clears throat> excuse me, and for us to understand, is that God's purposes often don't avoid suffering. They come through suffering. They don't take us out of hardship. They come through hardship. And what Jesus has his perspective or his mindset on is that through suffering, he becomes the rightful king. The kingdom comes through the cross. The king isn't defeated on the cross. He wins in his death and his resurrection. The rejection of the king is actually the victory of the king. The greatest wrong done against Jesus is how God sets things right. In his death, Jesus gains dominion. And in his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is crowned the royal king. And that is so hard for the disciples to understand. And if we're honest, it's so hard for us to understand. But Jesus will not let us define him apart from his cross. To define Jesus apart from the cross is an attempt to tame Jesus Jesus will not let us define him apart from the cross because it is through the cross that he defines his great love for us. Amen. Amen. Amen? Man is in rebellion against God. And our rebellion against God has separated us from him. And it has brought us to a place of death. We die physically because we're no longer connected to God's plan for our physical bodies. Our physical bodies deteriorate and you're decrepit, and then we die because we're separated from God. But we're also separated relationally from God. There's a barrier between us and him because of our sin against him. And if we die in that rebellion, we will be eternally separated from God. God is righteous, meaning that he's in the right since we have rebelled against him. And though he loves everybody, he cannot give up his righteousness. But God is also just meaning he can't let sin slide. Now, he cares about everybody, but he's not going to give up who he is as the just judge. 
And good works don't restore us into God to God because that's not the right currency to restore the relationship. When you've rebelled against somebody, it doesn't help when you just help you know an elderly woman across the street. <laughs> that's not going to restore you to God. Although God is just and righteous, though, he is full of love. And in God's great love for us, he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for sinners like you and sinners like me. God the Father sent God the Son to be placed on the cross on your behalf. Jesus, the Messiah, fully God, so he could be concerned with the concerns of God, and yet fully man, so he could represent us as our perfect representative. Sinless, but heads to the cross for sinners, where the wrath of God was poured out on him. And if you believe in Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, and if you trust in him, that wrath is poured out on him instead of on you. And there's no more wrath for you. You are fully forgiven. You have become part of God's family. He has filled you with his spirit. He will never leave you nor forsake you. All his promises are for you to hold on to. See, to define Jesus apart from the cross is an attempt to tame Jesus. And Jesus will not let us define him apart from the cross because it's through the cross that he defines his great love for us. And if you've never accepted Christ in your life, if you've never placed faith in him, my prayer is that you do so today. And I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. Is that good news? Can I go deeper? Yes. Okay. All right. Though many people come to faith in Jesus, and they're thankful for what Jesus has done for them, they're confident that Jesus loves them, they still try to tame Jesus. They still try to tame Jesus. We relate to Jesus like it's us who sets the agenda for the relationship. It's almost like we're sitting on a couch together hanging out with Jesus, and we're like, Jesus, what do you got going on? He's like, oh, I got nothing going on. What do you got going on? And we say, well, Jesus, I would like a very fulfilling life, and so I want you to give me the perfect career that's going to meet all my expectations. And uh, I've asked you to kind of work on my spouse a little bit, and that's going a little slow, Jesus. So could you speed that up for me, Jesus? And uh, I would like to be more fulfilled in my life because I heard something somewhere about my best life being now. And so, Jesus, could you get to work on all these things that I have an agenda for you for? Well, Here's the problem, people. In trying to tame Jesus, you yourself become tame. You start living for comfort. You start living for safety rather than reckless abandon for the purposes of God. Talk about it, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with bringing your request to Jesus. But we have to realize that Jesus is not your co-pilot. He is in the driver's seat. And this is his car to drive. And we're going wherever he tells us to go. Jesus will not be tamed. And he does not want you to be tamed. In verse 34, he says this to the crowds. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, I want to point something out. When we read the earlier stuff about suffering, rejection, and dying for Jesus, he actually didn't use the word cross. 
cross. He does later. The first time the cross is used in the book of Mark is when Jesus looks at the crowds and says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And I want to tell you, the people in the crowd would have been shocked. We wear crosses around our necklace, or uh, necklaces, and that's okay. It's a spiritual symbol. We got one right here. But we have to understand something that it's a much more grotesque, shocking symbol. The closest thing I can think of is the electric chair. And even that doesn't quite get it, because these people are thinking about the cross as the torture device of their oppressor. Well, so this is shocking when Jesus brings this up, and he says, take up your cross and follow me. What does he mean? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean that by taking up a cross and following him, you're atoning for your sins. Because if you're in Christ, all your sins have been paid for. Amen. Okay? Amen. Jesus also doesn't mean uh, something about, like, legalism. Like, the more you take up your cross, the more I'll love you. Legalism says rules are what buys you relationship. And Jesus is right there relating to them. He's not giving them a list of rules. He's saying, follow me. So it's not legalism. But it's also not uh, maybe what... What has gotten caught up in our culture, I would say, it's not the little annoyances in our life. For instance, some of you were rotten children when you were growing up, and, and your, your mama said, my kid just keeps acting up, but it's just my house to bear. <laughs> That's not what Jesus means either. It's not the little annoyances of life. He means something far more radical and shocking. He means for his disciples to shift and have a radical recentering of their life's agenda and purpose on him. Amen. On his mission and on his method. A radical recentering of their life on him, his mission, and his method. William Lane writes, Jesus stipulated that those who wish to follow him must shift the center of gravity in their lives from a concern for self to reckless abandon." for the will of God. A sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to be able to say yes to God. This involves radical denunciation of self-idolatry in every attempt to establish one's own life in accordance with the dictates of self. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow It's a hard word. It's a hard word in our cult, in our cultural moment. It's a hard word because what we're told is, hey, do you. Whatever is you, do it. Treat yourself. Follow your heart. Those are the message that, messages that we're inundated with every day. And what Jesus seems to be saying is, let go of it. Lay yourself down. Say no to following your heart so that you can follow Jesus laid down his life for us, and at that moment, our life became his. It became his to do with what he wants to do with it. And when we come to him, we come to him and he forgives all of our sins, and, and he restores us to God. We are declared righteous even though we're sinners, but our life is his. Our life is his. We died to self so that we can come to new life 
in him. I heard a story about a pastor who was baptizing a, a woman who just came to Christ. And the woman said, Pastor, when I am baptized in front of the church, when you dunk me down, hold me down just a second. Just a second longer than you normally would. Not because I want to be punished, but just because I need a reminder that I'm dead. That I'm dead to myself. And when I come up, alive to Jesus. I am no longer mine. I am Christ the Messiah. It stings a little bit, especially in an age of self-fulfillment. And just to clarify, Jesus isn't saying, don't be who I have made you to be. He's saying, be who I've made you to be for me. Don't stop taking care of yourself. Like, it's okay to do self-care. But there's a difference between self-care and saying, I'm going to live my whole life for self-fulfillment. The purpose of you becomes to be about Jesus. And you shift the agenda of your life to be about him and his mission. About the good news that you have been saved as an unworthy sinner and brought into the family of God. The good news that God's kingdom is now present and here, starting with Jesus and through us. That becomes the focus of our life. And you begin to live that out in your families, in your workplaces, on Hollywood Beach when we go there later today, in your relationship with your spouse and those loved ones. Everywhere you shift the purpose of you towards fulfilling his mission for you. But you also shift towards his method. You shift towards his method. In other words, if we follow him, our lives will begin to look a little bit like his life. It will be less of a, a chase after power and prestige and more focus on sacrificial service. But in that, if you make that shift towards him and towards his mission with his method, all of a sudden you yourselves become untamed. You don't need the comforts of the world. You don't need to be safe. You see opportunities for self-preservation. You say, no, I would rather live for the mission of Jesus. You have opportunities to hoard power. You say, you know what? I would rather be powerless if it means following Christ. You become untamed. Like Christ is. Like Jesus is. Jack Miller says that power is being unleashed in history. And it only works through those who deny self, take up their cross, and follow Christ. And you begin to give your life away for Jesus in his gospel. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? It's funny, I was reading a little bit this week, um, and, and I was looking at just stories of people chasing after dreams of self-fulfillment. And whether it was actor, rock star, sports star, there was a common theme. People had reached their dreams, and they were saying, it's not it. I'm there, and it's empty. Those who try and save their life will lose it. But those who give up their life to Jesus, for the mission of Jesus, following the method of Jesus, 
will save it because their life will be full of Jesus. See, if you pursue your will for your life rather than God's, you, you, you lose the very life that you are trying to preserve. But if you give it away to Jesus and his purposes, you find that your life is full of freedom. Untamed. I got a text from someone last week here in the church, and they said, yeah, I've been praying about sharing the gospel with someone at work, and God opened the door, and I did. And I could tell them the text message. It was the first time that they had had the opportunity to do that. And it was like they were stepping into like a new way of following Jesus. It was fulfilling, even though it was risky. He was untamed. Today, some of you are going to take a risk and go to the beach and engage in spiritual conversations with people. And you've never done it before. And I can't tell you what's going to happen. But I can tell you Jesus will be with you. And this is what it means to risk and follow him. So you're untamed. It doesn't matter what someone says to you. You're more concerned about sharing the message with him. I heard a great story about a, a, a pastor who um, went to a fast food restaurant. And he saw a student that had been at his church at the restaurant. Now, it was interesting because the student was a Harvard graduate. You know, if you go to Harvard, there's a lot of doors that open for you. But this student had not had any doors open for them after they graduated from Harvard. And they were working at a restaurant, which is fine. I've worked at a restaurant. But for someone who's been to Harvard, it's not exactly their expectations. And so the man waited for this student to have a coffee break. And afterwards, during the coffee break, they sat down and, and said, um, hey, you know, I know that your expectations were to work at Harvard work somewhere that was kind of on level with Harvard and you're working here, and I'm really sorry. And as he was saying that, the student said, stop. It's okay. Jesus has me. Amen. Amen. Jesus has me Amen. right where he wants me. Come on. And right here in this restaurant, I've gotten to talk with someone who's a Buddhist from Sri Lanka. I've gotten to talk with a Muslim from Lebanon. I've gotten to talk with a Hindu person from India and a Christian from El Salvador. And Jesus has me right here using me for his mission, even though that's not what I would have expected or wanted from him. What incredible confidence and what incredible boldness for someone to live out the purposes of Jesus, to say, Jesus has me here. See, you can live untamed as well. You can live confident in the midst of hardship, in the midst of laying down your life, in the midst of walking through suffering as Jesus did, because our king is no longer on that cross. He was buried, and he ascended, and now he rules and reigns. And before he ascended to that throne, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. See, though Jesus laid down his glory, one day he will return. Part of the gospel is you get to share in that glory with him. So now, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you didn't just tell us what to do, you did it first. And as we're united with you in your death and we follow you in your sufferings, the promise remains that we will be raised unto glory 
that we will, will be united with you both in suffering and eternity in glory. And so I pray right now, Lord, that you would work in people's hearts, Lord, that you would give them faith to further risk and abandon, Lord. I pray for those that are hurting today, that this message that you enter into suffering for them would be a comfort to them. And all God's people say, amen. amen. Let's stand and sing.